Hello, church. My name is Priscilla, and we will now be reading today's passage from John 4, 16 to 24. Please follow along in your own Bible or the screen. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, well, good morning again to you, True North. My name is Eugene. I'm a member of the pastoral staff here. I also have the privilege of giving today's uh, word and message. Again, happy Mother's Day to those either who are a mother who are, can celebrate their own mother. And if you are grieving, uh, just know that our church is here for you as well on this day. Um, but we're in the middle of a series on worship, uh, the idea of really unpacking what that means, what that looks like. I think the word worship uh, for different people can mean a lot of things. It can mean oh, just singing, just coming on Sunday. Maybe it's, uh, if you're more charismatic, being in God's presence. Um, but for us, we wanted to take a, a longer look of at, here at True North, what would it look like to communally worship together? And if you've been, if you've been with us the past two weeks, um, Pastor Jay was preaching on how we worship the Father. Last week, how we worship the Son in Christ. And today, what I wanted to take a deeper look into, kind of the more mysterious way to worship, is this. How can we worship through and in the Holy Spirit? What does that look like? And the question I want to ask ask today, and even myself, is this. Um, when is the last time uh, you felt spiritually alive? I would venture a guess, and let me speak to some of us that have been raised in the church and, and are coming here maybe more out of habit than a conscious decision. Many of us are chasing nostalgia that the reason we come Sunday after Sunday is that at one point in our youth, at a retreat, uh, at a summer retreat, at a youth camp, at a praise night, you know, we had a breakdown moment at the altar call and we felt emotionally and even spiritually alive. Others of us, if you are maybe new or even searching in the faith, maybe that's something that you've always wanted, but have a trouble of trying to picture out in reality what does it practically look like for myself. And I would argue this, and even if I ask myself this question, if I'm honest with you, it's been a while. And, and that might be a, you know, maybe not the, not the best thing to confess as one of your pastors, right? But if we're honest, I, the, the reason I asked that is this, as I was preparing this, and uh, this is a message that's, I'm going to be honest, outside of our comfort zones. Um, if you've been with a, uh, us here at True North long enough, you'll know um, there are charismatic churches and non-charismatic churches. You can usually guess where we're landing on that scale. And when I look at my charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ, and see what they're experiencing on a daily basis, on Sunday, whatever it may be, I could tell that their worship is different. It's in the spirit. 
And I would argue this. Many of us, when we worship, it's more of a consumption of information than being consumed by God's presence. And what I want to show us today, that the element of worship, and I would even argue that the core nature of what worship is, is entering into God's presence and losing yourself in that. Well, I want to show us with this passage, what does it look like for us today? So three simple things, how we can worship in the spirit, how we can worship in the truth, and lastly, how we can worship with joy. How can we worship in spirit, truth, and with joy? But the first is this, how are we called to worship in the spirit? If you're new to the church, the Holy Spirit is, is what we believe in the, tri- the trinity of, of the God that we worship. And often, Francis Chan calls it the forgotten God, especially in the Western church, that when I ask you, what is the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of, it's, it's almost a mysterious force. It's like in Star Wars, like, oh, it's, the, it's just somewhere there and you feel it, right? Well, when you look at the text, Jesus is very clear when he says, if you're going to worship me, it has to be in the Spirit. Verse 24, it says, God, Jesus tells this to Samaritan woman, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You know, this passage of the Samaritan woman, uh, if you've read the Bible long enough, uh, you're very familiar with this passage. And often, including myself, you read that story to mean, oh, it's the breaking of cultural barriers and comfort zones, that you're supposed to have fellowship with people that are different than you. And that's a part of it. That is a part of it. But the more I, I read and prayed and read and read this passage this week, I realized the main point of this encounter with Jesus and the Samaritan woman is not just about breaking cultural barriers, about making friends with people that you don't like, but ultimately what the story is showing us is Jesus is saying, this is how you're called to worship me, in spirit and in truth. Well, if God is spirit, as Jesus says, what is the spirit? See, when you look at the passage, the Samaritan woman is more concerned about the process and formula of worship. She wants to make sure she gets it right. That's why she asked these questions even in the passage that we just read. Well, you know, are we supposed to worship here in this mountain? Because in my tradition, that's where we're supposed to be. But Jesus is not concerned in worship about formula or process. Jesus is more concerned about are you entering into the presence of God, into the Holy Spirit? Well, what is the Spirit of God? And again, this could be a a whole different sermon, but let me give a quick, quick synopsis of what I best think describes the Spirit in this passage. Um, When Jesus says, and he's expecting Jewish people to read this gospel. So when John writes, God is Spirit, it's a callback to Genesis 1, to the beginning. And you have to realize in the creation narrative, in the very first verses, we see the Spirit of God emerge. Genesis 1, 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see, in Hebrew, that word spirit is ruach and what it literally means is breath. And it's this idea that, and if you know, there's a scholar named Tim Mackey he's helped me realize this, that if you put your hand over your mouth and you breathe, you feel your breath but you don't see it, right? And you're like, well, what is that? You know, the, the Western answer is, like, oh, it's, it's air molecules. and stuff. Forget that. Right? At that time, when, when people would breathe and they can't see it, what they would say is, that's my presence. That's the essence of who I 
am. Right? If, if someone dies or like if I collapse, the first thing you do is to make sure that they have a breath because it shows that there is still the presence of a living being in there. And what this passage should be, you know, especially in this time, blowing people's minds because what God is saying is that my presence is with the people. And not only is my presence with the people, my presence is what gives people life. The Holy Spirit is what gives us life. In Genesis 2-7, the very same spirit that hovers over this dark world that has no life is the very same spirit that gives us breath, spiritual breath in our lung and our souls. Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed the man of, the, uh, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. What is the Holy Spirit? If I could just, you know, there's so many things, but for one simple definition, the Holy Spirit is the presence of God. And you have to realize the gravity of what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says, I, if God is spirit and you must worship in spirit and truth, for anyone of any religion, that must have been mind-blowing. Because in any other religious system, especially in the ancient Near East, the presence of the gods was something to be unlocked. It was something far away from people. And you have to prove yourself through sacrifice through process, through formula, by knowing the right things to access that presence. But what Jesus is saying is the minute you begin to worship me, the presence of what you are worshiping is with you. What does that mean for us today, living in the Bay Area in 2023? When we worship God, we have to realize we do so in God's very holy and tangible presence through the Spirit. And this is the thing. You know, it's like, oh, I can't see it. And if we're deep down inside, many of us, if you're like me, you're like, ah, that's, that's a little too weird for me. We, we become more rational than spiritual in this age. But I would ask you this. There are moments where the transcend, like, there are moments even in a secular world where we realize there is something beyond what we see. Right? Um, I don't know how many of you go to concerts or music festivals um, I used to go before uh, I had married, I got married and kids, right? I, I, I love concerts because why? If you're at a concert, especially with, if they suck, it sucks. But if someone you like, if it's Beyonce, if it's Bon Iver, if it's Adele, and you're in the front row, you, you know this. It's a spiritual experience. Like, wh like why do people, I, I was at a Chance Rapper concert once, right? And this, this, guy, was, this guy next to me was huge, tatted up. Right? And in the beginning of the passage, I mean, beginning of the, this concert, I was just like a little nervous, right? I was just like, you know, oh man, I hope everything's okay. In the middle of the concert, it's Chance the Rapper. He's on the floor crying, right? Like he's like, oh, are you? Like I was like, what is going on, right? Even in a very non-religious setting, we realize there is something different moving in us in those settings. We all strive for the supernatural, because deep down inside, we're desperately in need of it. But this is a disconnect. When we come, especially to worship on a Sunday in this building with the body of believers, we choose to ignore that part of worship. Our worship is more like the Samaritan woman's. We are more concerned with the process and content more than God's presence. And this is the thing. Many of us, we keep God and Jesus at a distance of saying, I don't want to get too spiritual. I'll come out on a Sunday. Right? I'll come out to, to a community group here and there. You know, I'll, I'll give 
and even tithe here and there, but there's a distance that we keep because we don't want to get too spiritual. Many of us come on Sunday just for this part, the pulpit. And I, I, the reason I hate TED Talks is this. It, it's made every Sunday sermon-centric. You know how I know this? When I'm not preaching and I'm sitting in the back, you know how many people I know duck their heads and come in at the third song, right? And this is the thing. I'm just like you, right? Like when, when, I, when I was growing up in church and everyone's clapping and stuff, I was like, this, this feels very cultish, right? This feels very weird. I just want to be able to learn about God and I'm good. But what Jesus is saying is this, this the, not that this isn't important, but the whole point of me even preaching is to get you to get into God's present, wo- presence. God, worship should not be pulpit-centric, but presence-centric. You know, many of us, the, the way we come to worship together on a Sunday it almost resembles watching a concert on YouTube. Like uh, one of my friends was at Coachella and they messaged me saying, oh, Blackpink was here and it was amazing, right? Like you need to watch it. So I was like, okay, cool. You know, Korean, Pride, K-pop, cool, I'll watch it. I watched it on YouTube. I was like, this, this is very mid, right? Like, cause when you're watching on YouTube, you hear the voice crack. Like people dancing from a distance, especially on screen, it just looks kind of weird, like, oh, this is like, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not about that, right? But it's very different if you're actually there. It, you don't hear the voice crack that much. You're, you're kind of spiritually aligned with the stage. And I would argue this, many of us, when we come on Sunday, we act like we're watching a screen. All we want is content and information. Terry Walling puts it really well. He writes this, the Western church is educated way beyond its level of obedience. It is not an issue anymore of accumulating more information, but being willing to put yourself in a place of transformation. If you think more content and knowledge and truth will solve the deep satisfying or the deep longing of your soul to need God, I have a very breaking news. It's not. It's important. We should know who God is. We should learn more about him. And look, listen to all the podcasts you want in the world. But unless you enter into God's presence, all of that is meaningless. Jesus, before this, tells the woman, if you want to worship, it's like drinking living water. That's what I am. And you know, like, if, you're, if it's a hot day and you're parched, and that the minute you drink cold ice water, it's a visceral, emotional, spiritual experience, Right? It hits you. And that's what God is saying is this. Can you, when you worship, worship in the presence of God? And how do we do that? How do we do that here? Um, I'll tell you this. I, I think it's baby steps. It doesn't mean that we're going to start worshiping in tongues and dancing. And, and like, you know, if that happens, I'll be like, whoa, this, something seems off, right? But I do think it's baby steps to get there. I think the first thing that we should do as a church is this. Simple as this. Being reminded that when we worship, we're tangibly in God's presence. And I want to be very clear, God's presence and emotional experience are two different things. Sometimes they'll be aligned, but the simple fact of acknowledging I'm in the presence of God when I'm singing, when I'm listening, when I'm reading, and even when I'm fellowshipping with people, even when I'm driving, even when I'm golfing, even when I'm fishing, even when I'm with my kids, being reminded constantly of God's presence will change the outlook of the reality that you're living in. You know how I know this? What is today? Mother's Day, right? And I want to be very careful here. Uh, it, it, you know, if you have a broken relationship with your mother, or even if you had to lose your mother in a, in a grieving way, I understand. But this might hit a little bit deeper from that. 
why do we have Mother's Day? I've always asked myself that. And why do they only get one day, right? It doesn't make sense. I often think this. We're celebrating Mother's Day because often when we get older and when you leave the house, when you post-college, you realize, although my mom's broken and maybe even traumatic way of loving me was always there, I was always not acknowledging and aware of that presence. And the reason we have Mother's Day is to be reminded that I'm in the presence, if I'm lucky enough, of my mom in this physical world. When we gather on Sunday, you know what we're doing? It's the same thing, to be reminded that we're in the presence of God. What does it look like to be reminded? Uh, you know, when you're about to, for many of us, uh, if you're lucky enough, you're about to have a meal with your mother. What do you do if you're a, a good son or daughter? You're physically present, at least just for one day, right? It's the one day where you have a meal and you fight to be, like, I'm not gonna check, you know, warrior, there's no game on, so there's no excuse. You, you have to fight to be deeply present with your mom on this day. When we come and worship, especially on Sunday, what that means for us is the same thing. Can we be present for all of worship? Look, I know it's tough. Like, I'm in the back sometimes, and like, my phone is on a lot too. But just, just for a Sunday, it's, it's like for 65 minutes, can we get here just at 11.03? Read the call to worship together. Read confession together and just tell myself, I'm in the presence of God. I'm in the presence of God. I'm in the presence of God. You know this. Even in the most attention deficit era that we live in, of TikTok, of emails, of Slack notification, even outside of the church setting, there are moments when if you give whatever moment you have your full self, there's a different glory that you feel. You know, with my kids, I always take them out these days to the park just because, like, I can't, like, I'll go crazy if I'm at home. And usually when I'm letting them go, like, I'll be honest, I'm on my phone, I'm distracted. But a, a couple of days ago, they're playing in the park, and, you know, God, thankfully, they're playing well. And just for one, I don't know what happened, I put my phone down, and there was a different level of joy and affection and glory of just seeing my kids for the first time in a long time playing together. We can have that same moment here if we just are present and reminded that we're in the presence of God. That's what it means to worship in the spirit. But then Jesus also says worship in spirit and also in truth. What does it mean then if we're, that's what it means to be worshiping in the spirit, to be in God's presence, to be aware of it. What does it mean to worship in truth as well? John Tyson puts it really well. Worship isn't just an invitation to the presence of God. Worship is also a confrontation with the presence of God. What Jesus is saying is this, when you enter into God's presence, it has to lead you to be convicted, confronted, and repentant of your sinful selves. And this is the thing. At this moment, for many of us, especially if you're new or checking out the faith, you're like, this is what usually happens. Jesus is cool. It's like, oh, he is the life of the world. He gives you all these beautiful emotions. But then at one point you realize, wait a second, Jesus is calling me to change my life. He's calling me to not do certain things. He's calling me to be repentant. And that's usually the, the fork that we stay in. And many of us just sit there. We're like, oh, I, I love this part of Jesus, but whoa, the confrontation, let me just wait at this fork on the road. And I want to, make sure that you understand something. Oftentimes, especially when you come into a religious setting or even the Christian church, 
you think, man, I love all this stuff, but I don't like the stuff where it tells me to change my life because I am who I am. Like, let me be me. That is a lie that you're living. David Foster Wallace, I always quote this, and it, it should be etched into all of our minds. Everybody worships. The only choice you get is what you worship. And I would take it even further. Everybody worships. You only get to choose what you worship. And whatever you worship is doing the same thing. It's confronting you. If you worship your vocation, the confrontation and ultimately the sacrifice will be the time and the relationships in your life. If you worship sex, at one point there will be a confrontation where you have to sacrifice intimacy and self-value. If you worship beauty and self-worth, there is a confrontation at one point of beauty standards and even how you value yourself. Everything you worship is a confrontation. You have to see that. But what Jesus is saying is something very different. When we worship in truth and we're confronted of our shameful, sinful past selves or even our present selves, the reason Jesus wants to confront you is because of this. It's not to make you a better person. That's a bunch of baloney. The reason Jesus confronts you with your sin is so that you can go deeper into the spirit of God, into his presence. It's a circle. That's what worship is. It's entering into God's presence, being convicted of your sin and repenting so that you can go deeper into God's presence and find the deeper sins of your life. That's ultimately what worship is. It's an exchange of your shameful past selves for a deeper presence of God. Think about what's happening here. The woman wants this living water. Jesus says, I am the living water. And the woman says, I need it. What's Jesus' response? Where is your husband? Where is your husband? And that seems a little bait and swishy, right? I remember, you know, Mother's Day to honor my mother. I remember my mom once told me, like, do you want a PlayStation? I was like, yes, I want living water. I want a PlayStation. She was like, where's your report card? I was like, whoa, wait a second. It's a bait and switch, right? And it seems like that's what Jesus is doing. Where Jesus says, I can give you everything. Well, you need to repent. And, and you have to read very carefully. Although Jesus confronts her and confronts us, he never condemns her and never condemns us. Jesus is not asking this woman to, to you know, show her shameful self so that he can have some sort of power over her. No, the reason Jesus confronts her is so that she can be free of that power over her own life. That's what worship is. It's a circle of just going back and forth. Look, although Jesus is right in front of her, the woman throughout this story could not see him for who he truly was. Why? Because her shame of having five husbands and living with even a six different man that wasn't her husband, that shame of her sinful self, of her hiding it, did not allow her to see Jesus as the Messiah until it came up in repentance. Shame does that. And worship is an exchange of shame for God's presence and glory. Gene Baker Miller writes this, with shame, we become so fearful of engaging others and even God because of past neglects, humiliations, and violations. We begin to keep important parts of our experience out of connection, and I would even dare to say connection with God. We do not feel safe enough to more fully represent ourselves in relational encounters. Worship is a confrontation. The reason why we even have confession before we get to this sermon 
is to bake into your minds. This is a cycle, not to somehow be sadistically abusing our congregation. No, it's when you let go of who you are in shame, you exchange that to, when you come to the cross, you get God's presence and glory. And you have to realize this in the passage. At the end, when she basically realizes, wait, this is the Messiah. This is who I've been waiting for. She worships. She literally runs into town screaming, this is who God is and this is who I am, even in my shameful self. And in verse 28, there's a key verse that I think John adds. He, he writes this, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see who this man is. You have to leave whatever you've been drinking out of to be able to drink out of Jesus more purely and this is the thing, I don't know what you're drinking out of, but I can take a guess because I, I do the same thing. And what these Sundays are calling us to do is we worship weekly to be reminded that Jesus is asking you every Sunday, I'm giving you living water, I'm giving you my presence, just give me that other broken water jug and I'll give you a richer, more deeper life. This is what it means to be human. This is the thing, every sin that Jesus asks us to repent of, when you look at it deeply, it's because whatever sin you're committing, it's inhibiting you from being a full human being. Because God designed you in that manner. With every layer of shame and sin we're able to peel away and worship, the deeper into God's presence we can dive into. Let me illustrate this with, with one example. Um, if you know me, like uh, there's, there's several of men here at our church that always text me randomly, like, hey, you wanna work out, you wanna work out? I was like, wait, wait, wait. What are all these people saying about me? Like, I, I get, I'm out of shape. I get it, okay? And uh, a couple of my friends, three of my friends, uh, two weeks ago, uh, we haven't, is close, one, some of my closest college friends, we haven't seen them in a while. One of them is getting a second kid, so we're like, hey, you know, let's celebrate your death of everything. And, you know, one last trip. So we went to Zion together. I don't know how many of you guys have been to Zion National Park. Beautiful park. It's literally a straight canyon, and everything around you just looks like you're in a different planet. And one of the uh, most beautiful hikes there is a hike called Angel's Landing. And it's uh, basically at the highest point, I think, of Zion. You just see the whole canyon. And all three of us, uh, so there's four of us, three of us were like, we're good. We have one friend who, you, like, there's always one friend that's a little bit off, you know, like mentally, right? And his name is Steve in our group. And he's like, we can do this. And we told Steve, like, we're three pastors out of shape. Like, there's no way you can drag us to do this. And the thing is, to do Angel's Landing, you need a permit, okay? And we tricked him. We were like, oh, we'll, we'll turn in our permit applications last night. None of us did. Really. We woke up like, oh, my, we didn't get the permit, Steve. Like, oh, man, we're so sorry, right? He said, don't worry. We go to the park. He said, we can hike up halfway and just at least see it, and then you can come back down. We're like, okay, cool. So if you don't know Angel's Landing, it's a bunch of switchbacks. And you go up, and you get to the point where it's, you're entering into Angel's Landing. And I think there's a picture up. But basically, that pick that area is like it look I don't know if you can see this but literally this looks really narrow and it because it is it's literally the size of this carpet and there's just a chain right and and we got there and all four of us looked and Steve was like there's no ranger we can go and we're like okay like we trust you right so we trusted him and then one of my friends Chris like three steps in just froze and he had a panic attack and Steve was like leave him behind and we're like <laughs> All right, and we literally left them behind. And you get to kind of this midpoint of Angel's Landing, and it's right here when you finally see, like, that's what you have left. And literally, you're just completely exposed. 
Like it's just this carpet, much of rock, and each side is just a deep fall off. And my other friend, Daniel, he, he led worship for us a couple of years ago at a retreat, saw this, and at this point he said, like, Steve, I can't do this. And Steve looked at me and said, leave him behind. We can keep going, right? And I was like, okay, cool. And I kept going. And I was, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Like, I'm not too scared of heights. I was terrified of this uh, part of the journey. And he kept, Steve kept lying to me. He was like, just five more minutes. I was like, okay, 10 minutes passed. Like, Steve, it's been 10 minutes. Like, oh, just 15 more minutes. I was like, that doesn't make sense, right? And I, I remember I, I was more sore from my arms than my legs because I was gripping this so tightly, right? And you keep going, and this is the thing. Every step you take is terrifying. I'm like, I'm, it, maybe I'm overblowing it, but for me it was because literally one misstep and you could die. And I remember the night before, Steve showed us a news clip of like how 10 people died last year. Like, this isn't what you're supposed to show us, right? But I keep going. He just keeps saying, follow my steps, follow my steps. Look at my shoes. Don't look at anything else. And I keep looking at his shoes, and I keep going, and we get to the top. And if you look to the last picture, like, I made it. And this is a picture I took. I'm very proud. I took this by myself, okay? And this is the thing. Throughout that hike, there are views that are glorious. There's waterfalls. The canyon landscape is any inch of that hike that you take, even from the bottom up, is beautiful. But I'll tell you this, nothing compared to that glory when you got to the summit. And what I realized is this, what Jesus is asking us to do is sort of similar. Because when he says, worship me in spirit, you're like, yes, and truth. You're like, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Because to worship God in truth, it doesn't just mean that you get to the truth of who he is. It also means that you get to the truth of who you are. The parts of yourself that you're terrified to tell others to God and even to yourself. But what God promises you is this. He's not sadistic. What he's saying is, look, just like on that hike, every step that you take is painful and terrifying and just like you don't know what's going to happen. But he's promising you with every sin that you repent of, with every layer of shame that you can share with God and others, there is a deeper glory of God's presence because your eyes are open to who he is. That is what worship is. It's an exchange of your sin for God's presence. And what Jesus is saying is this, when you get to the top, that chain that holds you on is my body. This is the thing, when I'm doing Angel's Landing, I, told, like, I looked at it, I was like, if they didn't install this chain, people would die, like literally. Like, and you even have half of them, they have the cables because they know if you don't have training, there's no way you could do it. And what Jesus is saying is this, I've laid down that path for you. It looks tough, but just hang on. Just hang on, because when I went to the cross, what he's telling the Samaritan woman, what he's telling us is this. I gave up my life so that you could have God's presence with you. That is what worshiping in spirit and truth looks like. Let me end with this practically, very quickly. What does that look like for us here at True North? And I think it means this is to worship with joy. To worship in spirit and truth means to worship with joy. Let me be very honest with all of us and maybe even including myself. Worship here at True North at times seems more like a funeral than a celebration, right, if you're with me. I'm not calling anyone out. I know there are cultural things going on. I know there's a lot of things going on. But I will tell you this. I, I, I want to be very careful. This doesn't mean that uh, I'm not equating emotional expression to spiritual maturity. I'm not saying that. 
But I will say this as one of your pastors, there is a sense of guardedness that I feel that maybe even I have when we gather here on Sunday in worship. But when you look at the Samaritan woman, it's very, very different. The Samaritan woman had everything to be ashamed of, everything to be terrified. If this gets out, my life is over. I've had five husbands, and the person I'm living with right now is a sixth man that I'm not even married to. In that time, that is literally social suicide. But think about this. The Samaritan woman runs into a town dominated by Samaritan men. Think about the power dynamic there. Runs not out of guilt, not with anger, but with joy. Come and see who this man is because this is my shameful past. What does that mean for us? Uh, we often, and I'm speaking more out of experience, we're, we can be skeptical and even condescending to naive, emotional, spiritual responses to God. Like when people... If you're like me, and like I remember growing up where the praiser was like, everyone stand up and raise your hands. I was like, ah, just shut up. Like, I don't want to do that, man. Like, you're being naive, right? I'd argue many of us feel the same way, possibly. And I'll tell you this, distance from God's presence ultimately leads to condescension to those who have spiritual experiences. You know, like even when you're on stage or at a concert, when you're in the front row, and I videotape you, if it's, like, it's very embarrassing, right? Because you just let yourself go. Like, I hate when I'm at concerts and people are singing really off-key behind me, right? I'm just like, dude, shut up, right? But why are they doing that? Because they've just lost. They don't care. They're fully in that moment. And this is the thing. When you're in the back row of a concert and you look at people in the front, you can be very, like, you can be very condescending. Like, oh, those fools, right? But what, if you are condescending of emotional and spiritual experiences, I would beg to argue that you're very distant from the presence of God, including myself. Apathy is most likely a sign of distance from God's presence. And this is the thing, joy, if you, and I'm not talking about even God, just with people, joy can only be experienced with genuine, intimate friendships. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can only like really ugly laugh in front of your spouse and your deep friends, right? Everyone else you kind of control fake like, oh, that's really funny, right? And always like, if people are telling you a story and you don't like them, you're always like, that's crazy, bro. But if I say that's crazy, bro, two times, I mean, like, wrap it up. Like, I don't want to hear this, right? I would say this. When we come to church, that's often what we're doing. We hear the sermon. We sing the songs. Or in, in our minds, we're like, oh, that's crazy, bro. That's crazy. Like, oh, Jesus died from that's crazy. That's crazy. Wrap it up, right? I do that all the time, too. But you have to see joy is a true response to genuine worship, that when you are joyful, that, that is a sign that you're in intimate relationship with someone and you're truly worshiping. You know how I know this? Uh, last week, this past week was a monumental uh, week in our household. Uh, my son Eli went to the movie theaters for the first time. Watch Mario, bro, or whatever it's called, Mario Brothers. Horrible movie, right? I was just like, what? Like, whoa, I spent so much money on this, right? Uh, but my son was locked in, locked in. He's worshiping. And at the end of the movie, he comes out. And every day since then, he always looks at me and says, Mamma Mia, right? Every day, right? Every day with, like, full joy. I was like, that movie sucked, right? But I was like, this kid is so joyful. And I'll tell you this. There are moments where you're like, man, I am so cynical. I don't even know what joy looks like. I would tell you this. There is a moment in your life where you had joy. Maybe in your childhood, maybe in your youth. Just You felt it before. And what God is inviting you is, is to be brave enough and courageous enough to go back into that to hope for joy. To be joyful is courageous, especially in this time. 
And I'll end with this, joy is powerful. Look, it converts a whole town of Samaritans. The woman does not come with arguments or knowledge of God. All she comes armed with is joy. And it literally changes a whole town to see Jesus is. We live in an era full of cynics, hoping deep down inside to be a child again. Genuine worship and joy, so much stronger than a good sermon, than a great podcast. Genuine joy is what brings people to Christ. And I hope that as we worship as a church, that is what we can embody, that we worship in spirit and truth in God's presence, and we do so marked by a church with joy. Let's pray.